God, open our hearts and minds, enliven our spirits, cause us to hear your voice, we pray. Amen. We begin with the reading from the Gospel of Matthew. We read from chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, so if you want to follow along, feel free. Use your pew Bibles, your personal devices. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this is a familiar story to us on Palm Sunday. It's where we get the, the, the expression of Palm Sunday. Jesus arriving on a donkey is something that would have resonated very clearly with the people who were witnessing it. And this is why they responded the way they did. But let's just look at what's what's been happening so far in our study of God's favorite place on earth, in the village of Bethany, which is implicit in this passage. Jesus started out at Bethany and he's going up the hill there. Remember, Bethany is the village that's on the other side of the hill from the temple. So you have the temple and then you have the Mount of Olives and then just over the Mount of Olives and slightly down the other side, just out of sight of the temple, is a little village called Bethany where Jesus is staying and he will be staying throughout this week that we commemorate each year. And Jesus and his small entourage is ascending the backside of the Mount of Olives and perhaps at a certain point as they crest the hill, they can see the light of the sun gleaming on the golden points of the crown of the temple probably picturing in their mind's eye all of the things that the worshipers would say, repeating the Psalms, how lovely is your house, O Lord, the worship that even the birds would rest in your heights, you know, that the idea that this huge temple with its golden crown is gleaming as they cross over the hill. And for Jesus, it means something different than what people had come to anticipate. 
And so as he crests the top of the hill and starts down the other side of the Mount of Olives, he comes to a village that's about equidistant on the Jerusalem side of the mount. He comes upon a village called Bethpage, another one of these little crossroads towns. And before they get there, he sends his disciples into town to fetch the donkey and the colt. And so you can sort of picture him slowly making his way down to Bethpage, the white sandstone of all of the Temple Mount and all of the, the uh, earthworks and the cut stone and everything. And then this beautiful white palace-like building with its gold gleaming in the sun. And, and he's starting down the hill toward the place where he's going to mount the donkey, looking over at all of that very clearly understanding his plan, understanding the true meaning of what he is about to undertake. And of course, the runners that he sent ahead of him have stirred up some noise that has resulted in this celebration of his entry. You can't help but notice as you look at this story how interesting it is that a man who worked very hard to fly under the radar and to keep his celebrity in check up to this point has now overtly asked for something to happen that will announce unequivocally that he's the Messiah and that this is where he's headed. That statement, go get the donkey, is... Jesus saying, here it comes, this is it, this is what you've been waiting for, and boy, won't you be surprised at how this works out. Because for Jesus, this is not a triumphal entry in the sense that he is about to take control of the country or the holy seat of Jerusalem. He's, he's not coming to reproduce the glory of King David, although that's what everybody expects. And this is something that you've probably heard before, but consider that there's even more going on in Jesus's thinking than just that. He enters the town on a donkey to fulfill the passage that said he would do so, but keeping in mind that it is a tradition in that part of the world and a biblical tradition that can be validated through many scriptures that a conquering king would have come in on a war horse. If he was coming to take control, if he was coming to, to, to seize the power of the city over the city, then he would have come on a horse. It's being announced very clearly that he comes in peace by the fact that he's riding on a donkey. And that's not as all, that, that's still worth celebrating as far as the people are concerned because, you know, when you don't like the power that's there and you want to see it replaced with something better, it's okay if there's a bloodless coup, you're okay with that. So Jesus is announcing that he's coming to take over, to be the new king of the Jews and he's coming on a donkey. So, you know, apparently he's taking care of everything and there's not, not going to be any bloodshed. The people are celebrating. 
So even that isn't conveying to them the message that we will come to understand because we have the benefit of hindsight. He's descending the Mount of Olives toward the Kidron Valley, which is a sharp, deep valley right between the base of the Mount of Olives and the base of Mount Zion where the temple is. And no doubt when he looks out across the temple, he sees not only the gleaming of the white and the gold, but he also sees this constant pillar of smoke rising, this black acrid smoke rising from the court outside the temple door where all the sacrifices are being burned. No doubt he can even see the mist coming off of the hot blood that's flowing through channels out of this area that for all intents and purposes is a processing plant. It's a, it's a butcher shop where the priests are the first kosher butchers and they're, they're cutting up the sacrifices and doing the proper duty according to the law. And the blood is flowing steadily through streams cut in the pavement outside the walls of the city and into the Kidron Valley. And Jesus is going to come down across that valley knowing that he is not presenting himself as a conquering king, nor is he coming to lead a bloodless coup. He is presenting himself like Isaac was presented on the back of a donkey when his father Abraham brought him to this same place to sacrifice him. This is what Jesus sees. This is what Jesus knows. It's subtle, but some people must have noticed, at least those ones who had been with him in Bethany, must have noticed that what he was doing was not entering the city as a conqueror, but as a sacrifice. He was taking himself on the donkey's back in the same spirit in which Isaac was taken to the place of sacrifice, in the same route that would have been taken by the animals that are being led to the place of sacrifice. Jesus is clearly stating that his intent is to bring peace via his own sacrifice. That's what's going on in this triumphal entry. Now, we didn't read this passage, but immediately following what we did read is the story of how Jesus cleanses the temple. Keep in mind that temple worship by this point has been industrialized and institutionalized to an unbelievable extent. And to try to put it in perspective, imagine yourself traveling during a busy uh, travel season like the holidays and and you go to the airport and where you park is tightly controlled and the routes you take to get to the gates you plan to use are tightly controlled you go through a series of checkpoints you have to wait in line at the TSA you have to go through this entire process it's quite an ordeal to get where you want to go so that you can do what you want to do and this is in effect what happens at the temple especially at times like the feasts of Passover Millions of people are going to go in there to mark this occasion by checking that off their list of things they need to do every year in order to be in a right relationship with God. But if we're honest, to be in a right relationship with God in the eyes of our peers, because that's really 
what it had become at this point. Those are the same people that Jesus spoke harshly to and criticized with witty and highly accurate assumptions when he said things like he did on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came into the temple to rectify a problem that the temple system no longer solved and never really did unless people did it in the right spirit. I could go even further back if you'd like, but I won't for your sake and mine, but I can tell you that when you look at the year of Jubilee that we celebrate, remember my first six months here with you as pastor, now almost four years ago, we did our own version of the year of Jubilee. And one of the things we had to acknowledge is that Israel never did it. And God had been kind of against them in certain ways ever since because they never celebrated the year of Jubilee. Jesus now being the Jubilee is about to do in his week, we call Holy Week, the very thing that Jubilee was meant to do, which is in effect set everything right. You know, God's reset button. Instead, what they did and what people always do is they institutionalize things and industrialize things. I've been reading a book lately about Henry Ford, and it's a remarkable study in how he virtually revolutionized uh, industry at a time you know, when we were still doing things in this sort of old agrarian way of, of the 19th century, he basically created the 20th century as we know it or knew it. And, and it's fascinating, really, because what, what he did is exactly what was happening in Jerusalem the day Jesus entered the city. A production line approach to worshiping God. They were entering the temple courts and being processed like people on their way to a gate to board an airplane. They were being cleansed in the ritual baths. They were presenting their sacrifices or purchasing or exchanging uh, in the temple courts so that they could get an appropriate sacrifice for their budget. And another thing that quite frequently happened, of course, was there were people who were more influential, people who had more money, who didn't play by the same rules as the average person and got it to the kind of got the express route you know they got the the TSA free pass you know they got the they got the process accelerated but they also showed up with the gaudiest gifts and the biggest bull or the biggest ram to be sacrificed you see and then inside the temple courts, these sacrifices are being processed mechanically and methodically, just like they are now in the local processing plant. Just a steady flow of animals being killed and bled and sacrificed and presented, and then the meat preserved for the Levites. And this whole thing is very systematic and scientific. And, and somehow when the people leave, with their Easter basket full of candy, right? And they're, they're, they're all excited and they've seen all their old friends again for another year's celebration and they leave and they all is right with me and the world and God and everything. Now, I don't think we 
imagine ourselves being that way, but if the truth be told, there's an awful lot of Christianity that's expressed the same way. Wouldn't you agree that many Christians go through the motions? They check things off their list and it makes them feel right in the eyes of God, at least as far as their peers are concerned. Because if it comes right down to it, more people spend an inordinate amount of time and energy making sure their peers admire, revere, and respect them and see them the way they would like to be seen by their peers than they do their God view, the way the Lord sees them. And so this is Jesus not only cleansing the temple, but stating clearly that they have turned this whole thing into a mockery. And so many times we have these discussions about how could Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, how could he go into the temple and beat everybody up and chase everybody out and do all these things that seem so unchristian? How can he do that? Well, he was making it ready. He wasn't passing judgment on it so much as he was getting it ready for him to do the thing that it was meant for, which is to create righteousness for the unclean in the eyes of God. And it's his intent to go in there and create a one and only necessary time of sacrifice so that through that sacrifice, everyone would have what the perfect sacrifice gets you, which is righteousness in the eyes of God and therefore worthiness in the eyes of God to be the eternal companion of his son. In effect, Jesus is going into the temple to have his blood sprinkled on the, the Holy of Holies, which is in fact a throne that only he could occupy. Now wrap your mind around that if you dare. The Holy of Holies is a, is a, is a place that is sort of a, a place in the air above the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's the place where the angel's wings touch over their backs as a sort of seat back to the throne. So if, if anyone would dare sit on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and lean back on the back of the seat, which is the angel's wings, then they would be in effect sitting in a throne that only Christ Jesus could occupy. It's the Holy of Holies. And so once a year, the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for the nation on that Holy of Holies and, and in effect say to God who resides on that throne, we're sorry. Accept our grief and repentance once again. And if he survived going in there, all was well. Now Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives announcing that he comes in peace to, to bring a coup, but a coup that isn't anything like what they're expecting. In fact, he's coming to act as a sacrifice that will render the temple irrelevant. Thus, when he breathes his last, as we remember on Good Friday, the temple curtain is torn. Now there is no separation between the Holy of Holies and the rest of creation. 
in effect, when he pays that penalty, his blood is sprinkled on the Holy of Holies, and now it is accessible for us. And he sits on that throne. All of this is is a message that is to both the world and realm of timelessness and then the world of linear, which is the one we live in. In other words, sometimes we read these Easter stories, these Christmas stories, and, and we, you know, come to church to celebrate these things that, that we've been told are so major and significant and worthy of our recognition. And, and we do all of this, but we cannot help because of our human nature, but look at these things in a linear way. But they are not things that were meant for linear observation. What Jesus did that day when he rode into Jerusalem was not only a statement of a process that would take the next four or five days and ultimately lead to his death and resurrection. It wasn't about that. It was a statement to God's enemy, Satan. Those of you who did the Revelation study in here with me for those 30 sessions that we did the entire book of Revelation, you remember that there is this fall. There's this rebellion that happens in the realm of God where Satan and a third of the heavenly host abandon God and are cast to the earth. And it is that same Satan who then tempts Eve and puts us in the circumstance we live in now where we are subject to sin until we accept God's power over sin through Christ. And so Jesus is stating clearly not to the Romans or to the Jewish leaders or even to the people who are believing in this idea that he's going to free them from their temporary troubles for a few generations. He's not making a statement for them. He's making a statement to a world that exists outside of space and time. He's making a statement to all of creation, to God the Father. And the statement is, sin is done. The power of sin in death ends when I ride this donkey to the place of sacrifice and then like the ram in the thicket that took the place of Isaac, at the last moment, he takes on the burden of all of humanity's sin. It's his blood that represents the sin of all the people on the throne or the Holy of Holies. And then it is he who will then occupy that throne because he has earned that by redeeming us in this way. This thing that's happening in Easter and Palm Sunday and all that we remember during these next few days, this thing is so huge. It's so beyond earth and space and time, so beyond our linear existence and our linear interpretation of things. And it's so much more than a guarantee that when you die, you get to go to heaven like that thief on the cross that we'll talk about next Friday. All of that's good, and it's a good place to start, but understand that each year when we celebrate this season, 
We're celebrating something that is, for all intents and purposes, complete. Jesus says it is finished on Friday because it is. And yet it's not. But that's because he is God, the son, speaking from outside of space and time. And therefore it is finished as far as he's concerned. Just the same as if God says I am to Moses from the burning bush, he's saying I am to us. 4,000 years later, 5,000 years later, he's still saying I am in the same moment because God is speaking from outside of this linear existence we have. We, we like living in a, an aquarium and everything we see is, is, you know, remember the apostle Paul says that, you know, right now we see vaguely, but then we'll see it all as clearly as, as that. In, in other words, we, we are limited to the point of view that we have for the moment, but everything in your Bible, everything that Jesus does and will do is about more. And so the idea that I hope you can walk away from this with is that, you know, it's that time of the year. I always marvel at this. You know, every year in America, in the Midwest, there's a church and a town or a few communities that end up getting blown away by tornadoes right around Easter time. I mean, it's just like every year that happens. And, and I know it might sound like an absurd diversion, but my, my point is, is that, that, that if we think about religion the way they do in Jerusalem at the time Jesus is coming to correct all of this, if, if we think like we live and worship within the temple that hasn't been cleansed by Jesus, then there's going to be this anger and this frustration and this disbelief when bad things happen to good people and heaven forbid to Christians and churches. But it happens every year. And if this triumph isn't about making it better for people who follow Christ, then what is it about? That's the question. And the question is easily answered if we're willing to think beyond ourselves in this temporary life we live. If we're willing to think about Jesus as the Lord of all creation, who is not limited by space and time. And that becomes even more evident to us next Sunday when we talk about the resurrection. And so what I hope for you is that this week you begin to recognize that, that your redemption has been done for a long time and it's, it's your responsibility to embrace that. It's a gift you've already been given, you just need to open it. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, one time we were putting away all the Christmas decorations and my mom stumbled across a gift that was wrapped in white tissue paper and so it looked just like the apron under the Christmas tree. And so it's like two weeks after Christmas and there's a Christmas gift there that we forgot to open. Well, you can imagine as a child, I was intrigued by that. Imagine you've got a gift sitting right in front of you, the greatest gift that could ever be given to you and you just haven't opened it because it's a done deal. And as far as heaven is concerned, your place has already been set at the table at the wedding feast of the Lamb. You just need to accept the invitation. And this week, it isn't a promise 
that your life will go better because you love Jesus. In fact, Jesus told us that it will probably get harder in a lot of ways because of our devotion to him. It isn't a promise that caused that thief on the cross who confessed Jesus as Lord to get down off the cross. What it did was provide him something to hope for beyond his temporary circumstances. Something Jesus called paradise. So our job this week is to understand the cosmic nature of the things that we're going to remember and that they are all designed for one purpose, God's holy purpose, which is to create perfect companions for his son for all eternity. And we become those perfect companions when we accept his grace, unconditional grace, unconditionally, and then repent and accept new life in the Holy Spirit so that we become incomplete, but on our road to completion. The whole message of Easter and the resurrection, if after all, is about looking toward what we are becoming and anticipating that. Last, last week I talked about anticipating Bethany and that was essentially the concept that we want to get across was that we're not anticipating Jerusalem, which is the mechanized, industrialized version of religion that makes us feel good because we get our ticket punched. It's Bethany where we are free and flowing with the Spirit of God and experiencing the presence of God as a limited view for the moment that will be fulfilled and completed in our future, but for all practical purposes is already complete outside of time. I hope you'll contemplate these things this week and then join us as we flesh it out a little more in the coming Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. Let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you and praise you this day for speaking truth in love. I hope that everything that you've said through me would be worthy. But just in case, just blow away anything that doesn't make sense and leave in the hearts of your people those things that come directly from you so that we might embrace our eternal nature right now. For your glory, we pray. Amen.